Have you finished your personal statement yet? Now's the perfect time to get it professionally reviewed by a medical school HQ expert advisor. We have former directors of admissions, admissions officers, and the like on our small team of amazing people. They have the inside knowledge from reading thousands and thousands and thousands, tens, if not 100,000 personal statements going through the process and setting up the process for their whole committee. They know exactly what medical schools look for and the common red flags that can get your entire application thrown out. Take advantage of our flash sale right now, going through May 6th, up to 6,000 characters reviewed for just $150. That's a $75 discount on our regular price. Go to editmyps.com. Again, that's editmyps.com. The Medical School Headquarters Podcast, session number 160. Hello and welcome to the Medical School Headquarters Podcast, where we believe that collaboration, not competition, is key to your pre-med success. I'm your host, Dr. Ryan Gray, and in this podcast, we share with you stories, encouragement, and information that you need to know to help guide you on your path to becoming a physician. But today I have a very special guest joining me. It's Adele Wolfson. She's a biochemistry teacher for the the last umpteen years, and we're going to talk all about kind of the liberal arts degree and her take on why it's so important. Now, I found uh, Adele through an essay that she wrote, and in this essay, she she talks about how there's this big kind of swing away from strictly science-based students and having students that just can crush the MCAT and can crush all of their prereqs to having students that have people skills and learning sociology, learning psychology in the, in the humanities. And Adele looks at it from, from her point of view of being a liberal arts teacher for the last uh, many years, as I, as I said earlier. Um, but but she she goes and she talks about how and science is is so much more than just rote memorization of facts, and um, there, there's just so much more with analyzing data and and putting it into context. And how liberal arts degrees and and students that study liberal arts are, are able to integrate a lot of that information a lot better. And it's an awesome discussion. Take a listen to it if you're beginning your journey into undergrad and you're trying to figure out what you should study or even maybe where to go to undergrad if you're a high school student at this stage uh, or maybe a a non-traditional student looking to go back and do something different. Take a listen to this episode and and hear some of the arguments for for maybe why studying a liberal arts degree um, and getting your prereqs uh, on the side or in, in, in conjunction with your liberal arts degree might be the best thing for, for everybody, uh, yourself, your patients, and your colleagues. After the interview with Adele, I'll ha- answer a couple questions that were called in, and we'll wrap it up at the end. Adele, thanks for joining me. I'm very happy to be here. Now, you've been a biochemistry teacher now for some years, and I, I don't want to date you, um, but you have seen um, a, a huge transition, I'm assuming, in the biochemistry world as it relates to 
to medicine and medical school and how the admissions process to medical school has changed over those years that you've been a professor. Can you talk a little bit about what you've seen from the professor side of the students that you see or even the curriculum that you're teaching for, I guess, pre-meds and in, in, in specifically? Sure. I think there are two things um, that are involved in your question and in, in my answer. One has to do with the preparation of students and the expectations um, for them, and the other has to do with the field itself. So, as far as um, expectations, I would say that almost nobody took biochemistry as an undergraduate um, in the early days. Um, my first teaching was actually at medical schools, and the students coming into those courses had almost never had biochemistry as undergraduates, so we were starting from scratch in terms of teaching that material. Now, I think there's a huge expectation that everybody will have seen biochemistry as an undergraduate, and in fact, that it is the undergraduate underpinnings of much of what they do in their, um, certainly in their preclinical years, and I would say also in their clinical years, um, I would say that um, there were no real majors in biochemistry in the early days. It was really that you took chemistry and biology, um, but there was no point at which you could connect those two disciplines until medical school or graduate school. And uh, these days, um, biochemistry is as you probably know, one of the large interdisciplinary majors and is almost to the point of not being considered interdisciplinary. It's its own field. So that's what I would say as far as um, the changes in, in preparation and expectations. As far as the field itself, we all know that biochemistry, like all of the sciences, is exploding um, because of the new tools that we have and also for the great interest in the field and the amount of money that flows into it, both from the government, from universities, and from uh, the pharmaceutical industry and biotech more generally. Um, so it's hard to keep up with that. Everybody knows that textbooks get bigger and bigger and bigger every year. Um, and certainly the explosion in molecular biology, molecular genetics has changed it a lot from the years when I was a student myself and even when I began to teach. So everybody, I hope, understands that there's no way to cover that, the breadth of that field. So my um, approach has been to do great depth in particular areas, to teach the tools of learning that material, but not try to survey all of it. And I worry that there is still some desire to survey all of biochemistry, which is a hopeless task. So that's what I would hope to convince people not to do. Um, since the information is going to continue to change, um, what you really want is a solid foundation in the core disciplines and the ability to learn new material as it arises. I think that's a, a great tactic. And even uh, as students progress through medical school, I think what they're teaching in medical school, it, it changes every year, every day. And so again, it's it's the tools that you're teaching to to go out and find what that new information is and the new knowledge is. Absolutely. So you, it, it's it's interesting. I didn't I didn't necessarily know that biochemistry wasn't a, an undergrad uh, class back in the day, but now we have this the the MCAT, um, this this behemoth of a test for pre meds that they need to take to get into the majority of medical schools. And the MCAT is now testing biochemistry uh, on their exam. So it's, it's basically required now for every pre-med student to take biochemistry. 
from from your point of view, are, are we going in the right direction with a step like that? Or are we going in the wrong direction? Well, as a biochemist, it's hard for me to argue against people taking lots of biochemistry. I think it's a fabulous field and I wouldn't want to keep anybody from learning it. I think as for almost everything, if you have Again, the the right background and the right tools, you can learn it at any stage. And I didn't see that people were greatly disadvantaged in the old days by coming in cold into those fields, Um, that they took an introductory biochemistry course in their first year of medical school, even if they had never seen biochemistry before, they had gotten up to speed pretty quickly in, um, in comparison to people who might have seen it as undergraduates. But I do think that it's... um, you know, again, I fell in love with biochemistry. That's why I'm a biochemist. I think that it allows you to understand why you learn chemistry and why you learn biology when you start to combine those two. So I'm not going to argue against people taking it as undergraduates. I do just hope, like for every field, every discipline, um, I would hate to have you just repeat the same thing when you get to the next stage. So one of my great interests in teaching and in research about education is how students can go through a progression of learning. And so I don't want people learning the same thing in biochemistry as undergraduates that they learned, for example, in introductory chemistry, which sometimes feels like it's the case. And I don't want people in medical school learning the same biochemistry that they learned as undergraduates. That seems a waste of their time. And again, given what I just said about the the breadth of the discipline, being able to learn either new parts of the field or go into more depth in it than they were able to do as undergraduates. Yeah, I think it is frustrating from a medical student point of view of, of just repeating stuff. Now, it's, it's interesting. Well, I want to dig into this essay that you wrote and the reason that I reached out to you. The essay is titled Science Matters. Now, I want to start the discussion by asking you, if, if you had a loved one in the hospital, you would you want their physician to be a liberal arts major or a biochemistry major? So I think the biochemistry is a liberal art. Um, I don't see a, a, I don't see those as two ends of a spectrum. I think that every student should know sufficient science to be a good physician, and every student should know enough of the liberal arts and humanities. Sorry, of the of the humanities and social sciences to understand how the world works on a social level and on an artistic level. So I don't see those as opposed to one another, but I do want to make sure that people know enough science to understand the underlying processes that they're dealing with in seeing patients and interpreting results and reading blood work and trying to diagnose. And that's been a huge shift in the admissions committee process, the admissions process to medical school, is 20 years ago, the the admissions committee seemed to want science-focused um, students, ones that were just dedicated to science, and they didn't care about any of the other stuff. Why do you think there's such a huge shift in, in bringing the humanities into medicine now? Well, I think that everybody has the experience of dealing with physicians who are not very good at working with patients and they would like uh, some more social um, skills and um, knowledge of the world in which 
the patients live. Certainly, um, understanding the communities in which they reside, understanding uh, some of the economic and social pressures that they experience in addition to their health problems can help the physician be a better um, physician and and aid to their patients. So, I have I have no problem with that at all. My my issue in um, in writing that piece. Um, I really uh, was responding to a couple of pieces that I had either read or heard on uh, the radio or in newspapers that uh, was saying there was no point in them, in physicians or pre-med students um, having seen some of the pathways and memorizing them, et cetera, because they never use those again. And my reaction was, well, if all you did was memorize them, then there wasn't any point to them. The point was to understand what was going on there. And I think the more science you know, the deeper you can understand it and the um, more knowledge of that you can bring to the rest of your um, care for your patients. So I was not trying to put those two in opposition, um, the liberal arts or the humanities and social sciences to the natural and physical sciences. I was simply trying to say that the amount of science that you learn does matter, that you, sh- you, need to, you, you can't come into medicine without a deep knowledge of, of science and particularly of biochemistry, but I would also say physiology, microbiology, immunology. There's a lot of things that you need to understand on a molecular level in order to see your patient on the macroscopic level and as a member of society. So I'm just trying to say don't give a don't, you know, throw out the baby with the bathwater because you thought that there was not enough of the social end of uh, pre-med education. Don't replace the science with that, but try to find the best parts of both of those to come into it. There are programs out there now, uh, like Mount Sinai's FlexMed program, and I, I had Dr. Muller on a, a long time ago, back in episode 16, um, talking about the FlexMed program, and it mm-hmm. seems like they they kind of are replacing some of the science with humanities, or or at least replacing the sciences with allowing the student to kind of follow their own passions, whether it go be traveling abroad or, or learning a, a romantic language. Do you think that's going too far in the wrong direction or is, are they finding a, a happy medium somewhere? Well, I, I would be interested in hearing what the outcomes are for those physicians. And mm-hmm. it may well be that it works out fine for them. As I say, I'm just concerned that the approach of saying that we don't need that much science means that the amount of science which goes in winds up being memorization and seeing science as just a tool as opposed to being um, a real discipline from which you can continuously move forward but always keep coming back to what that grounding is. Yeah, I, I think I, I think ultimately, and, and I kind of met, we mentioned it already, is is building that foundation of learning the scientific method and, and that type of thinking that goes into science and, and carry that foundation forward as you go. It, it really, as a physician now, looking back on my science years, whether it's physics or, or just basic chemistry or biochemistry, you don't use it day in and day out as a practitioner, but the foundation, the, the skills that you built to to take those classes and to pass the classes and to study for the MCAT, those are all interwoven into who I am as a physician. Well, I would hope so. I mean, the other thing that I feel that I'm fighting against in talking about putting in opposition the sciences to the other fields is this sense that science is a body of knowledge. And 
and that is not all that it is. So it's not just a bunch of facts to memorize. It's not just a bunch of pathways that somebody worked out. It's figuring out how they worked out those pathways. And then what are the implications of the regulation of those pathways for your patient's health? Um, I remember when I first learned the Krebs cycle or first learned metabolism as, a, as an undergraduate that um, – I memorized all the pathways like people do. And then I walked into the exam and I was given a copy of the pathways. And I remember the sense of panic I had at that moment because I thought everything that I know is just what's on this piece of paper. So what else could they possibly <laughs> ask me? And that's when I finally began to understand that that having those facts is just the starting point. Then you start to play with them and you say, well, what if this, um, what if this enzyme is missing? What if there's um, a breakdown in the regulation of this particular reaction? What happens? What are the implications of that? And that's what I feel like people can't do if all they do is see it as a bunch of facts. And I think that there's, it's too often being taught that way, it's too often being tested that way, and therefore the students are, you know, reacting to what is reasonable for them, right? If they're going to be tested on it as a, as a list of things to be memorized, they're going to memorize them. But if they're going to be given those things and then asked to work with them, then they're going to rise to that occasion. Yeah, I, I think I, it's a whole nother podcast episode talking about how uh, I think it's unfortunate how the MCAT drives a lot of what is taught. But... I, I want to dig into the study that you published um, mm-hmm. with some of your colleagues about mixing science and the humanities and, and some of the, the other uh, um, uh, disciplines with the STEM majors, the, the, the science and technology, engineering, mathematics majors. What did you ultimately come across with this um, uh, study that you published? So the, the paper that you're talking about is the liberal education of STEM majors that yeah. I published with um, my colleague Lee Cuba in the sociology department and one of our undergraduates, um, Alexandra Day. The um, the reason that, that we even did this study was because we're at a liberal arts college and we greatly believe in having the disciplines uh, be situated um, in conversation with one another, right? That we don't want um, we don't expect that people will specialize so much that they would not see the other disciplines, but our greatest hope is that there would be a reason to connect those disciplines. So we wanted to see the experience of students who had explored further outside their field and those who had stuck more closely to their majors. And we were able to do this because um, my colleague Lee Cuba was part of a, a consortium that did a longitudinal study of um, students at seven, seven um different liberal arts colleges and so we had interview data from them um, for their whole four years in school in addition to a couple of years after graduation so we really could look um, with some richness at the um, information they provided and what we found um, you know is not surprising to me because as I say I'm, I'm from a liberal arts college and I greatly believe in this approach to education what we found is that students who took the most courses outside of their major, and in this case outside of the STEM disciplines, were best able to learn that second discipline in some depth, and in the very best cases were able to make connections between those fields. So I see that as the ideal of a liberal arts um, education. Define connections. So connections means that they can talk knowledgeably about the ways in which 
knowledge is um, created in different fields. They understand what it means to do something in an analytical field that has lots and lots of data and also within, for example, a literature field that uses um, narrative as their kind of data um, and talk about both the shortcomings and the, the advantages of using those two different things, but also is able to um, say, oh, we took up this topic in our class in physics, for example, but we also took it up in our class in economics and we looked at it from this somewhat different point of view and we brought tools from those different fields in order to be able to understand the topic more completely. It also means that they um, know people in each of those fields and it allows for collaboration in a way that we always hope will occur later in life when you're doing research or uh, working in your profession, but they're able to make those collaborative um, connections even early in their academic career. So if, if I'm looking at it from a, a collaborative perspective um, through research or in, in medicine working with a, a tough patient and I have a a team of physicians that I'm working with, the physicians that have this ability to connect different disciplines and thoughts and ideas, they they almost are, are the ones that are able to see beyond what us science-minded only people see. We, we're, we're all hammers and we see everything as a nail, yet they see things in a much broader spec, almost from maybe a, a 30,000 foot view. Would, would that be uh, how you would think about it? Exactly. And, and vice versa, I would say that you probably bring something to the discussion that they might not be able to do. I also think that, you know, going back to this question about, of seeing patients within their um, societal and, and um, psychological framework, um, that you probably are not able to do that, or maybe you can now because you've had practice, but that a fresh new physician might not be able to do. But by collaborating with a social worker, for example, or a psychologist, that you might be able to, um, you know, do a better job for the patient than you would have on your own. Yeah, it's it's interesting. A lot of my listeners, a lot of the listeners that are listening right now are non-traditional students. And mm-hmm. I try to tell them when I talk to them, they, they think they're at a disadvantage because they're coming back from the workforce are doing something else for X number of years. But I, I try to explain to them that that's their, their leg up. They're that's able to communicate with patients on this level because they have that experience. Right. And I think it's, this is quite apart from medical school, but I think that it's important for anyone who's coming from a slightly um, non-traditional, if you will, or just different direction that there's, that your strength is your, is that what you think of as your weakness is often your strength, right? So the things that make you different may make it harder for you to navigate the system in kind of the way that a more privileged person might be able to do. Um, but the fact that you have an, a different view act- and, the, and also the fact that you've been able to navigate it as well as you have means that you have particular strengths that the traditional student might not. So how does a... A, a high school student or, or maybe an early college student who's out there trying to figure out what they should major in, staring down this gauntlet of, of courses that they quote unquote need to take to prepare for the MCAT and what's required by the majority of medical schools out there. How do, how do they see all of that and then try to fit in some of this other stuff to make them more well-rounded? Yeah. <laughs> 
Well, my answer is going to be the same as it always is, that you should go to a liberal arts college. <laughs> I don't think you should know what you're going to major in when you're in high school or maybe even in your first or second year of college. I think you should take the time to figure out what you're passionate about. Um, clearly, you need to be able to check those boxes if that's what medical schools are going to require. Um, but I don't think that that actually fills up that much of your program. So, if you come to college or even before college and you fall in love with biochemistry as I did, um, which I didn't actually do until pretty late in my life, I have to say, but um, relatively. Um, if you fall in love with biochemistry, then sure, take all the biochemistry you possibly can and that will mean, you know, by definition that you'll fulfill all of the science requirements and then um, take uh, whatever psychology, sociology, English um, you're able to take that you really enjoy and that will add to your portfolio. But if you come to college and you're passionate about Greek, then major in classics, you know, and just make sure that you find enough time to put in um, the, the, the science and other courses that you need. I do think that passion is the most important thing for, for what you major in. Um, and then you should take courses that interest you on top of that, right? So I don't... I hate to think of anything being taken just to check off a box. Uh, probably it's going to happen for at least some of the courses that you take, but at least within the disciplines that you need for medical school, I hope that you like them enough that you're going to be able to spend time on them and to see the connections again to, um, to where you're going in terms of the profession that you've decided that you want to pursue. I, love I, just, that. I, I just don't think that, that, I think there's enough years and courses in college to take both the things that you have to take and the things that you really want to take. Yeah, I, I think it's it's easier once we're on this side of it, um, mm -hmm. and it's a lot harder as the the incoming student when they're they're seeing all of these requirements. I'm sure that's true. Yes, I want to. I, I think that was a great discussion about the the benefits of the humanities in medicine and, and mixing and, and building those connections as we talked about. I want to talk about biochemistry for a minute. I, I think it, it's interesting because the organic chemistries and the biochemistries of the world seem to be the biggest split between, that's the biggest filter for pre-med students. Why do you think biochemistry and, and organic chemistry, if you can talk about that, why do you think it those are, those classes seem to separate the the ones that are good and the ones that are, are not cut out for it? Well, I think part of it is uh, just the reputations that they have, right? So I think a lot of people are already dreading organic chemistry before they come to college even, mm -hmm. um, which makes no sense at all. <laughs> um, our students actually love organic chemistry um, because it's the first place that they see that you can be creative in chemistry. I think that for a lot of students, introductory chemistry, although it can be taught in a wonderful way, is often taught um, in a pretty dry way. And especially because people have seen it in high school in a not very good way. Even if they get a great course in college, they're not really recognizing how open and creative um, and how many unanswered questions there still are in that field. But I think that when they get to organic, they begin to see that you really can be creative and that there's lots going on that's not in the textbooks even. And that's even more so for biochemistry, obviously. There's, um, you know, it's wide open. There's more that we don't know than we know. Um, I, I do think that a lot of um, the 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 reason that people are afraid of it and then don't like it or drop it or whatever is because it really does require 
an enormous amount of information before you can begin to be creative with it. So first you need that knowledge base and then you can build on the knowledge base. You can't just jump ahead um, in the way that you might in a field where, you know, you can pick up a little bit and then build on that and then later come back and get some background information. So that's part of it. I think it's also, at least for biochemistry, this is actually not true of organic chemistry. I think organic chemistry requires a set of skills around um, seeing things in three dimensions, which is not taught that much in high school or early college. So, it's a new skill and it's hard to learn. And so, I think that some people, you know, don't either have an innate talent for that, or they're not willing to put in the time that it takes to get to that. Biochemistry, I think, is quantitative, at least in the way that we teach it um, in the early stages. Probably not in the advanced stages, but in the early stages, it's very quantitative, builds a lot actually on analytical chemistry and physical chemistry. And those are... um, there's a lot of people who are afraid of quantitative work, um, either because, again, they didn't have a good background up to this point, or they've been told that they're not good at it, um, or that they just don't have good um, they don't have good strategies for thinking about how to solve those kinds of problems, and so they get very hung up on those quantitative aspects, um, and it doesn't allow them to move into the more um, kind of model building, uh, creative versions of biochemistry. And again, I think that there's been way too much memorization um, in the courses that that have been presented, and people freak out about having to have that amount of information just kept in their head. I just don't see any personally any reason to be holding that in your head when you can locate it pretty quickly for the pre-med student out there struggling uh in their organic chemistry or or biochem uh specifically what do you say to them to to kind of pick them up by their bootstraps and and get them going in the right direction to to motivate them to to find the right path and and do well well, I think there's no um, substitute for just doing as many problems as possible. So, it, despite what I just said about being afraid of quantitative work, um, you have to you have to do it right. You can't understand the field unless um, unless you can do the basic work. So, again, I'm not expecting people to memorize things. Maybe other people are, but I do expect you to be. I do expect anybody in a class to be able to look at a problem, figure out how um, it needs to be solved, what information you need in order to get there. Um, and so I, I do think that you know, doing as many problems as possible will give you that kind of you know, just natural, it feels like natural talent after a while, even though it's not talent, it's learned. It's like an instrument. It's like a, you know, a sport that you play. You just practice a lot until you get to the point of being able to do it naturally without having to think about it. So, I think, you know, getting that into your muscle memory is really important um, in, in all of these fields, but in but particularly in organic um, chemistry and in biochemistry. So, as many practice problems as possible. But the other thing is, again, going back to the question of collaboration, I think that group work is just crucial. It, it's the way that we work once we are finished with college and graduate school and medical school. Almost nobody works alone. Maybe, you know, maybe poets, uh, uh, maybe mathematicians, but not even that. Um, but certainly anybody who works in a, a lab science um, or in a 
you know, a clinical setting works in a team. And as you said earlier, having um, the contributions from all members of that team coming to it from different points of view is crucial. And I think it's also crucial when you're learning to do these problems. And so I think working in groups uh, just gets to be um, uh, one of the ways that you build that muscle memory in, but also allows you to see things from a direction that you might not have been able to see before. All right. Again, that was Adele Wolfson, biochemistry teacher at Wellesley for the last several many years. You can find the article. I'll put a link to it. Uh, again, it's titled Science Matters. I'll put a link to it in the, the blog post specifically for this episode, which you can find at medicalschoolhq.net slash 160. Now, I want to go ahead and answer a couple of the questions that were called in to our question line, which you can find at medicalschoolhq.net slash question. Hello, my name is Brittany, and I'm calling from Tallahassee. And I just graduated this past December, and I listened to your podcast about starting out poorly, and I was wondering what would be your advice for someone who ended up poorly. I went from 3.6 my sophomore year to a 3.2 my senior year, spreading myself way too thin, trying to be president of all these clubs, and shadowing and I just let my GPA slip too much and then once I graduated I studied for the MCAT for four months and I took it in May I believe and I ended up scoring a 499 and I was just wondering where you think I should go from there I do plan on taking it again but Otherwise, what else do you guys recommend a S&P a post back? Thank you. All right. To answer that question, it's pretty much the same as starting undergrad poorly, right? So as, as you progress through your undergrad years, you want to show a steady trend if you're doing very well the whole time or an upward trend if you start off poorly. What medical schools definitely don't want to see is a downward trend in your grades that shows that you're maybe suffering some from some burnout, maybe you, you're lacking some direction, maybe you're questioning what you're doing and what you're going into. So they're going to have reservations about accepting a student that ends poorly, which is what Brittany's talking about here. But the, the advice in the podcast that I had with uh, Dr. Politis, which you can find at medicalschoolhq.net slash 35, the, the discussion we had was, was what do you do when you start your pre-med path poorly? But ultimately, that discussion talked about ways to prove to the admissions committee that they should take a chance on you. And it's the same discussion here. Um, it, do you need to take an SMP? Do you need need to do a, a post back, either a formal one or a do it yourself one? Those are all questions that that you'll need to answer based on really how poorly you did uh, over the, your last year and, and what the rest of your grades look like. Your MCAT, uh, the four ninety nine, not stellar. Um, I think I, I don't know all the conversions off the top of my head with the old MCAT. But I think it's roughly uh, 
uh, 27-ish maybe. Um, so it's not stellar. It's not something that can make up for uh, a bad year. Uh, and again, you're, there's still going to be some reservations in there. So I, you need to go talk to your pre-med advisor. Uh, it sounds like uh, being in Tallahassee, if you went to Florida State uh, or, or FAMU, um, you'll have access to um, hopefully the pre-med advisors, even though you have now since graduated. Go talk to them and, and figure out what you need to do next. But ultimately, what you need to do is the same thing as if you start poorly, and that's just prove to the schools that you're ready to to handle the medical school course load. Now, Brittany also called in uh, another time with kind of a, a separate question here. I'm currently taking a gap year while I get some shadowing in. And the hospital that I was shadowing in, they didn't have any doctors available. All they had was a PA. And I figured that I could get my feet wet and shadow the PA. He was working in the minor care unit. And I gotten really close with him and he's taught me a lot. And I was wondering, would it be advantageous get an LOR from him or should I get an LOR from the doctor I'm currently shadowing? Thank you. All right. So to answer that question uh, is a little bit more straightforward than the, than the last one. The An LOR from a PA or from an NP or a nurse isn't going to help you much in, in the medical school admissions process. Uh, obviously, if you're applying to a PA school, getting a letter of recommendation from a PA would be a good thing. Uh, letters of recommendations from healthcare providers, you, you want them to be physicians because ultimately they're writing a recommendation based on uh, their career and, and you entering that career and how well they can see you working as a physician. So even though PAs and, and physicians have very similar jobs, they're different enough that I, I would not recommend getting a letter of recommendation from a PA. I do want to take a second to thank listeners that have taken a, a second to uh, leave us a rating and review in iTunes. Uh, Dania1230 says, the hands down most relevant and useful info. Thank you for that. We have Dylan Copeland that says, best pre-med podcast, hands down. So lots of hands, uh, hand reviews going on here. Thank you, uh, Dylan Copeland. We have Hawaii ACU that says, mahalo for this podcast. I just love the word mahalo, so thank you for uh, writing that. Mahalo for writing mahalo. That's awesome. And then we have one more here from, I have no idea, Go Ashley Go. Oh, that's what it says, Go Ashley Go. It says, a, a fellow non-trad pre-med turned me onto this podcast, and I've been listening weekly since. So here's what I want you to do. Go Ashley Go said it perfectly. Somebody shared this podcast with her, and I want you to do the same thing. Go share it with your friends, your classmates, somebody else who has been thinking that going back to medical school has been right for them, somebody who's struggling in their undergrad years as a pre-med, go share this podcast with them. You don't need to go leave a rating interview, although I like those. I want you to go share this podcast with your friends. If you do that, I will be forever grateful. 
As always, I hope you got a ton of information out of this podcast today, and I hope you join us next week here at the Medical School Headquarters.